Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Shana Gadarian, author of the new book written with Sarah Goodman and Thomas Popinski, Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. Uh, Shana, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me. And congratulations uh, on the book. So what do we mean by pandemic politics? Good question. In February 2020, um, I got a note from uh, Sarah and Tom, my co-authors, saying that they wanted to put in a um, grant application to the National Science Foundation to study this new phenomenon of this virus that was in China. And we were really interested um, in thinking about what was the effect of this virus is going to be on American politics. And at that point, I'm not sure that any of us really knew how important partisanship was going to be. But as we see in the book, the politics, the partisanship, both around the messaging around the pandemic very early on about whether or not it was a threat and how to solve it were going to be key to how the American public understood and reacted to it from the very beginning. And we that's part of the story that we tell in the book. Yeah, and one of the, the points that you make early on is that this really was a national experience, that it's coast to coast, it's inland, it's red states, it's blue states, it's metropolitan, it's rural. Every corner of the, the country is affected by the pandemic, albeit in different ways. So, as I say, this really is something which is national in terms of not just its importance, but also the politics to respond to it. Sure. And it is national. But one of the things to keep in mind and remember is how the beginning of the pandemic was, in fact, a very different experience for people on the coast than on inland. And that's part of the reason that politics was able to shape the responses so quickly and so differently by where people lived. So if we remember where the first types of cases were coming, they were coming in Seattle and New York. The very early places that had very high caseloads were in what, you know, we would call blue states. These are states that had Democratic governors. Um, They're more likely to be um, voting for a Democratic presidential candidate. And while the virus does very quickly move across the country, that first several weeks of the experiences in these different places and the fact that we were in a presidential election, I think are really key to understanding how, while it was a national fact relatively quickly, the early parts of the pandemic really were shaped by the fact that these states that were most affected were not going to be key to the re-election. And yet you point out that this coronavirus pandemic was not really like other previous health emergencies. You give the example of the, the hundreds of thousands of people who sent dimes to the White House to help fund a polio vaccine and so on. That uh, this, this was something that seemed very new at the time. Uh, and so people were scrambling to get a grip on how to react and how to deal with the politics. Sure. And I think that is so key to understanding and thinking about why people were willing to turn to their political leaders to understand what was happening. This was very new, very uncertain. While places like China and South Korea had previous experience with COVID-like illnesses and even with SARS, the U.S. really didn't. And so the kind of playbook for how you understand this virus, what it was going to do, um, 
what were the best ways to fight it early on were really uncertain. And so people had to try and figure out quite early who to trust, who to turn to for information. And they were faced with a, an information environment that was very both uncertain, but also had very different messages based on who you were listening to. So while the president of the United States were, was telling people, it's going to be fine, it's not that serious, this illness is not um, as serious as other people would want to tell you, you have the WHO, you have the CDC, you have Democratic leaders saying, no, this is really important for us to know what to do. You should stay home. You should listen to health leaders. And these very different messages are giving people a lot of mixed messages about who to turn to and whether or not they actually need to do what their governors and state health leaders are telling them to do. And I suppose that was a that was a global thing as well that you we all remember from the time the confusion, or as you say, of mixed messages as even different governments, uh, the European Union, Sweden, Britain, uh, China, uh, the United States, were were all taking different approaches, sometimes radically different approaches to dealing with what was rapidly becoming a global phenomenon. Right. And I think that you see those differences across nations. I think what makes the U.S. particularly complicated for people is that there's so much variation within the U.S. because of federalism, because of the way that health is dealt with in the United States. We we not only have national messaging, there's also state messaging and different states are taking different kinds of precautions. They're shutting down at different times. They're opening back up at different times. Even sometimes within states, there's variation. I agree that there's lots of confusion, and this is a global phenomenon that people are uncertain about what to do. I think what's relatively different in the U.S. is the kind of disagreement from the executive branch with other parts of the executive branch that are in charge of health about whether or not they we needed to pay attention at all, and then how um, aggressive the policymaking needed to be at the national level. And you t- you talk in the book about how uh, traditionally the United States had come together historically at moments of crisis like 9-11 or going back to the Great Depression. I wonder even what the politics were like in the last one of these global pandemics in the the great flu pandemic of 1918-19? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, we have lots of evidence that under what we could call exogenous crises, when the crisis comes from abroad, that we tend to see what we call a rally around the flag effect. That is, kind of opposition to the president goes away, the president springs into action, and whether or not the president actually is effective or pursues the right policies. I think it's a separate question. We at least see the public kind of getting behind what the president says and approval ratings. I think that, you know, internal crises where they come from, the crises come from either lack of action from the executive or disagreement among the parties. There's less of that rally effect. And we have the, the opportunity in some sense for the pandemic to be one of these exogenous crises. No one's to blame for a virus. And so there was this possibility that, you know, the executive branch, the White House, they were, you know, they were all going to work together. We were going to see very effective policymaking, or at least the kind of 
what looked like effective policymaking. And what, what we saw was much more chaotic. There was much more disagreement across parties within, like I said, within the executive branch. And I think that just created this sense that no one really knew what they were doing. And so, you know, who are you going to turn to and trust? Um, is it the doctors who we tend to turn to in times of health crises or is it political leaders? And so I think this kind of chaos and the fact that there was all of this disagreement meant that we didn't see a rally effect. Um, the president didn't have a lot of room to maneuver and pursue different kinds of policies in ways that he potentially could have um, had there been less chaos. But um, we don't. But it's not the case that we would have necessarily expected that the disagreements were going to be on partisan lines. Maybe they were going to be on some other lines, right? They may have been on how aggressively to devolve power to the states or how aggressively to, you know, coordinate with the national government. But that's not necessarily on partisan lines. I think what's relatively unique here is that the president, and here I'm talking about former President Trump, really aligned what it meant to be a Republican with a very particular view of the pandemic and not shutting down or not um, wearing a mask. And that alignment also with Democrats of being tougher on the pandemic really aligned responses in the public on those partisan lines as well. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting in the book because uh, it, a lot of it is uh, about systemic failure and a lot of it is about individual circumstances that are going on at the time. And for example, you talk about uh, pre-existing political conditions that uh, in a suitably medical metaphor make the United States an unhealthy patient uh, when COVID uh, hit. So uh, to uh, quite a lot of the book is showing how the United States really wasn't set up to have a good pandemic response, you say. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we talk a lot about, you know, as you said, these preconditions, these what we call pre-existing conditions that would have made any crisis difficult in the United States on on Charles grounds. Right. So we talk about the fact that there's deep inequality, both on economic and racial lines. That means that lots of people don't have access to health care or it's inadequate. They don't have um, paid leave if they are sick. So just that alone, plus federalism, which means, again, this kind of coordination across the states was going to be difficult. Um, we do see partisan polarization on lots of issues. Um, including increasingly on health care, but that doesn't actually mean necessarily on health and, and kind of public health itself. But all of these conditions kind of are, are there prior to Donald Trump, but we're also in 2020, both coming off of an impeachment that's very bitter, um, right? So Trump is impeached by the House, but not removed from office from the Senate. And we're in the middle of a re-election campaign. So politics and partisanship are very salient. And so based on all those structural conditions, we would have expected the pandemic to be quite challenging anyway for the U.S. But the fact that Trump is really focused on his re-election, we do kind of point a lot of credit or blame to him and thinking about his reactions and, and whether or not um, a different Republican leader or any other president who was less 
focus on just that coalition that was going to reelect him and more focus on general policymaking that was going to benefit the whole country may have been able to handle the, the pandemic. Conservative leaders or right-wing leaders are bad at pandemic management, right? We see, we have other examples of conservative leaders who are doing a good job kind of handling the pandemic. The, you know, example in the UK, you know, kind of stands out. And there's lots of differences with the UK, right, a national healthcare system. But um, this isn't necessarily just about Trump or conservative leaders. It's about the combination of all of that structural and individual choices. Yeah, although it is true that you do say that President Trump is one of those pre-existing conditions. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 we do put a lot of blame on him, but I'm, this is not to say that it's Trump, you know, Trump is kind of sui generis himself, and it's not just him at work not just him as a conservative leader or a Republican leader, right? It, it's the combination of him caring about re-election and the impeachment and all of those things. I mean, it does speak to the difference in politics during the Trump administration. But, you know, we do see that, for example, he is pretty much responsible for one of the most impressive elements of the, the government's um, response to the pandemic, Operation Warp Speed. Absolutely. And one of the puzzling things I think is for a politician who really likes to take credit for things, this is massive to um, put money behind the development of what are now two extremely effective vaccines and then the J&J, which is slightly less effective, but still three very effective vaccines. And yet Trump himself doesn't take the vaccine in front of people. He he does, you know, in kind of mild ways, encourage people to get it, but isn't kind of the face of the vaccination campaign. And this is one that's a little bit puzzling because I do think that he would have reaped lots of political benefits from talking about the vaccine, about encouraging people who support him um, to take the vaccine. And what we see is that the vaccination campaigns while we have relatively high vaccination rates in the U.S., there are still these big gaps between Republicans and Democrats. And not that Trump could have fixed that, but by kind of, again, aligning vaccination with individual choice and freedom and what it means to be a Republican, I think could have moved the needle a bit on the uptake of vaccines among Republicans. One of the things that I, I found fascinating in the book is the tension that between experts and politicians very often and quite what we want from our experts because of course ultimately um, we want them to give uh, their advice we need their expertise but we do expect elected politicians and the the people that they've appointed uh, to be accountable for those decisions in, in a way that of course officials are not. Yeah that's a really interesting point. I think that's right in thinking about the politicians would prefer that experts give their advice and that they then allow for the politicians to either claim credit when it goes well or deflect blame by saying it's it's on the experts that they, that's what they told us. Um, and I do think you start to see these tensions in states you know, that have, that are a little bit more mixed in terms of their politics. Um, and, you know, in a state where 
say, a more rural state or in a state that where social distancing was easier or, um, you know, South Dakota or something along those lines, um, Republicans can say, well, we listened to the leaders, but now it's time for the, pol- you know, for us to take back over. Whereas you see a little bit more fidelity to what the experts are suggesting in terms of both shutdowns and like how long states are shut down and when they open back up in states that have um, that are a little bit more mixed in terms of their partisanship. So say Massachusetts or Maryland, um, where they have Republican governors, but have Democratic legislatures. And I think some of that's the pressure between the branches. But I think some of that is also that it allows for um, those Republican governors to say, well, this, I'm just relying on what the experts tell me. And so we're going to rely on that. And they're, and therefore they can deflect a little bit of blame that they might get from their own party. So I think you're right. There's this kind of like tension, but also the ability for politicians to say, well, you know, it's not really my fault if you don't like these lockdowns. The lockdowns are coming from either the federal government or they're coming from these, these state health departments. And it's not my fault. Yeah, and I was I was very struck by actually the point that you made right at the beginning of the interview about the difference uh, in response according to where you are. That it, it did strike me that in many ways this is part of that age-old debate about the social contract. How much freedom, you know, were we prepared to give up in return for protection uh, by the federal government? But the you know, and the state government, and the di- the uh, answer to that may well have been different if you were a resident in Miami uh, or in New York or in Michigan, somewhere like that. The, the, these these places, the social contract was different in each of them. I think that's right, and I, or I think it's not that it's different as much as there's an emphasis on different values in different places, right? So one of the things that I think American values both have a kind of communitarian element, but also this individualism and freedom is very important, you know, in the kind of American ethos, regardless of where you live or your ideology. But where we put the emphasis on that really does depend on who you're surrounded by and what the and what the policy question is. And so I, I think that's right, that the kind of our willingness to give up freedom of movement freedom of assembly and association may also be more temporary in some places than others. And it's also, I think, to go back to one of the things we talked about, these kind of preconditions, your ability to give up those freedoms really does depend on your wealth as well and this economic inequality. So some people never stop working during the lockdowns. They never stop moving. And it's because their jobs require them to be out in public. And those people are particularly vulnerable. And so our social contract is both, I think, somewhat different, but maybe about emphasis. But also we should recognize the kind of inequality in the ability to not uphold the social contract, but be a beneficiary of it based on how much wealth we have. Yeah, and there's there's quite a lot of anger, it seems to me, in the book about precisely that fact that the United States is the richest country in the world, having the best vaccine um, access, and yet also has, you know, one of the highest death rates coming out of the pandemic. At highest death rates, but also, you know, again, this kind of unequal 
costs to different communities. Um, and so if you know, there was an estimate about the pandemic shortening the lifespan of different groups and the public, right? So the lifespan of Native Americans was shortened by, I think, over six years um, from 2020 to 2022, almost solely based on the pandemic. And so, again, as a country, we have to think about the kind of unevenness, both of the death rates um, across different kinds of groups and different kinds of places, and then how we think about policies that might be able to help us for the next time we have a crisis like this. Yeah, a lot of the the book is about the damage which uh, partisanship uh, can do. There are there are examples which are more encouraging. That, uh, for example, you talk about how Congress did come together to pass economic relief, and um, both presidents, President Trump and President Biden, uh, worked with both parties across the aisle to make sure that that kind of relief uh, was what uh, was able to 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 go forward. So. Does that um, does that make you hopeful in some ways that uh, in a crisis uh, bridges can be built? Oh, for sure. Um, I think I think I'm a political scientist, so not particularly optimistic by nature. But yeah, I agree. So there are definitely signs that partisanship. One, I think it's important to recognize that partisanship is an identity, but identities are shiftable, right? They they're not static. And other identities do matter, right? Superseding identities like Amer being American or whatever your state identity is or whatever. Um, those identities are shiftable. And, you know, politics is about learning to work together even as we disagree. We have to fundamentally the definition of what politics are. And so the ability for both presidents, both parties to work together with Congress to pass what is massive and enormous and long-lasting um, economic relief for people so that they don't go hungry or they, you know, they don't get kicked out of their phones because they have to lock down or because they're sick. I think both presidents learned some lessons from 2008 from the financial crisis about not underestimating the need for people and trying to get back to full job markets pretty quickly. Um, and so I think we're seeing that. And um, so that does that does leave me with some optimism. I also think one of the things that my co-authors and I have been working on is looking at, you know, how much of this gap between Republicans and Democrats in their behaviors has to do really with the kind of, again, longstanding differences across parties and how much of it has to do again, with approval of Trump as a leader. And what we've estimated is quite a bit of that difference is, in fact, due to people who strongly approve of Trump, uh, not just, you know, Republicans as an idea, kind of as a group. And so that does actually suggest that these politics are not baked in forever. This partisanship around the pandemic came from somewhere, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be there forever and on every health crisis going forward. Yeah. And what about um, post-pandemic uh, politics? Do you think we've, we've seen some of the broader social issues emerging out of the lockdown that the cost to a generation of school children, the elderly, the vulnerable, those who live alone? Um, how, how do you think they those kind of issues are going to be dealt with uh, politically in the kind of context that you were talking about there? Yeah, that's a good question. And thinking about um, 
are there going to be lessons learned about um, in a climate crisis or you know, something like that? What's happening in Ohio where you know there's kind of a train derailment and there's pollution that's burning right now? Will we think about what it was the cost to children about being out of school for as long as they were? Um, and I think I'm actually slightly less hopeful there because I think we've we're at a point in politics that I see, which is we'd like to we'd like to move past this post pandemic, and there hasn't been a lot of looking backward and recognizing the massive, massive social costs and thinking about um, not just the deaths. I mean, we there's no talk, as I can tell, about a memorial or thinking through the kind of histories of the folks who have died. Um, and here, I think we have a lot more to do to think about what are the social costs that we all paid in the pandemic and then think about what are our policies going forward. And it's not that I don't think those conversations are being had, but I think politics moves at a pace on an electoral cycle where we want to think about the future and less about past and how we might be able to, again, most memorialize what happened, but also think about those lessons for education and social welfare going forward. And finally, Shana, I mean, what practical priorities do you think that we should have to, to learn from this experience, from the research that you've done? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, my first um, and very self-serving one is that we should have more social scientists in the discussions of public health, um, which is, I think, for all the benefits that public health brings us, the recognition of how difficult it might be to con convince people to do what is both in their best interest in their health, in their health, but also across different groups, I think is really important. And social scientists are pretty well positioned to do that. Um, the second one is if we think about, you know, messaging on health crises um, or an emerging health issue that we want to um, we want to forefront the experts. We want to forefront the people who um, can give us clear information, tell us when they're uncertain rather than having this mix of politicians and experts. Um, I think that was, again, as we talked about, quite confusing for people. Um, and then lastly, I think we want to think about, are there political, non-political leaders, rather, who might be best positioned on the local level to message to people, to get them both to pay attention and to kind of... Uh, take policies and recommendations um, that can help them in a crisis. And here we're thinking about, you know, community leaders that are outside of politics and health, right, in, in churches and civic groups, in scouts or schools, right? You know, what's the role of local leaders as well in helping to um, go around the politics um, that people see at the national level? So the book is Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. It's written by my guest, Shana Gadarian, with Sarah Goodman and Thomas Popinski. Uh, it's published by Princeton University Press. Uh, but for now, Shana, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. 
The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 